Nobody can be too Jewish. That's exactly it. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Chaim Rosenberg, author of the new book, The Shield of David, a history of Jewish servicemen in the American Armed Forces. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2JewishRadio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish Radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish. Shalom. My friends, there is a Jewish dedication to truth embodied in prayers like Emet Vemunah, God is true and faithful, and Emet V'yatsiv, God is true and straightforward. At the end of the Shema, the central prayer of Jewish monotheism, we even say, Adonai Elohechem Emet, God our Lord is truth. In some ways, Judaism understands that God is essentially truth itself that we are created in God's image and must ourselves strive for and seek only truth. Judaism, indeed all religion, depends on the belief that it is based on truth. Without that, it undercuts its own very foundations. Ah, but politics, on the other hand, is something quite different. All you have to know is that ex-President Trump's media outlet is called Truth Social. To understand that truth must mean something um, untrue or even flat-out false to some politicians, or at least the truth is not recognizable as such to some people. We have in recent times been told that we live in the post-truth era that there are alternate facts explaining things differently than the actual genuine real facts do. In other words, that truth is just lies. This mirrors the classic dystopian novel by George Orwell written long ago, a satiric takedown of totalitarianism, which had a ministry of truth with three slogans, War is peace, freedom is slavery, Ignorance is strength. Look, politicians have always had a rather casual relationship to the truth. This probably goes back to the very first election campaign ever, whenever that was, and to the first ruler who lied to his people, who was probably the very first ruler ever. And it has continued, of course. The winning candidate didn't keep our boys out of war. There has never been a chicken in every pot. Prosperity was not necessarily just around the corner. Happy days weren't always here again. There was no missile gap. And in spite of reading his lips, there were new taxes. And so on. You know, my friends, we thought Joe Biden wasn't particularly truthful. He plagiarized a speech or two in his past. We were a little surprised when Melania Trump plagiarized Michelle Obama's speeches. And, of course, Donald Trump, most of the time he spoke or tweeted, including many, 
Okay, mostly demonstrably untrue statements presented as facts. Or alternate facts? Uh, But then we come to George Santos, or whoever he actually is, who has moved this denial of truth to a much higher level. I mean, pretending to be Jewish is only a small part of his enormous catalog of lies. While in the not-too-distant past, Jewish politicians often downplayed their religion, or even hid it. Today, we're in the era when people genuinely pretend to be Jewish to gain votes. Comedian John Lovitz, best known for playing the pathological liar on Saturday Night Live years ago, he dropped by The Tonight Show, imitating pathological liar and newly minted Republican Congressman George Santos, or whoever he is, and had this to say. I'm just in town to pick up my Nobel Peace Prize. Congratulations. Yeah, perform a couple nights at Madison Square Garden. Mm -hmm. I didn't know you were playing MSG. Yes, yes, I'll be singing all my hit songs. Piano Man, Hey Jude, Happy Birthday. Well, I'm glad you're here, Congressman, because I have some questions. A lot lot of people have called you out for lying about details in your life. And what do you have to say to that? Well, you know, I don't consider the things I've said to be lies. They're uh, they're what my great-grandfather, Winston Churchill, he would call them embellishments, embellishments, you know. I, am, I embellish, and on my hot dog, I put relish. Mm. <laughs> I relish the embellish. Oh. Jimmy. Now you... <laughs> you said on your resume that you worked for Goldman Sachs, and that is just not true. No, all right, fine, all right. That, no, that is... The truth is, I did not work for Goldman Sachs. Hmm. I am Goldman Sachs. <laughs> Yes, I founded the company many years ago, but I changed my name to George Santos because who wants the last name Sachs? It stinks. What about your education? What about your education? Where did you actually go to school? Well, I'll be honest with you, Jimmy. I went to high school uh, from in uh, Euphoria, you see. <laughs> but they kicked me out after I broke up with Sidney Sweeney. You also lied about being Jewish. No, 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 no. I never said I was Jewish. I said I was Jewish. No, I did. That's what I said. No, the truth is I'm a part-time Jew. I am. Yes, in my spare time, I'm the Prime Minister of Israel. Yes, Santos said he's Jew-ish. You know, like he's Scott-ish, Irish, Brit. Ish. It's funny stuff. This guy will be voting on our national budget. Not John Lovitz, George Santos. Ah, American politics, the comedic gift that keeps on giving. But look, I realize this may be a hopeless plea, but can't we please, please regain some level of sanity and accountability in our society? Isn't it possible to stop a truly pathological liar from winning and holding high public office? Can't we return to some dedication to truth, to telling the truth, to living the truth, to, at the very least, respecting the truth? It would be a very Jewish thing to do. Not Jew-ish. Really Jewish. And, frankly, it would be right. And that's just true.
Well, this coming Shabbat, we will be celebrating Shabbat Shirah, the Sabbath of song, chanting the Torah portion when our ancestors escaped Egyptian slavery and sang a great song commemorating their salvation after crossing the sea. To play us in this morning on this theme, here's cantor David Propus singing Mayor Finkelstein's setting of Michamocha, the quotation from the song at the sea that's part of every evening and morning service. That was Micha Mocha for Shabbat Shirah this week, the Sabbath of song. Our guest this morning on Two Jewish is Chaim Rosenberg. Do you know the extensive history of Jews in the American military? Well, it started back in the Revolutionary War, and it is out of all proportion to our share in the American population. Find out all about it when we come back with the author of Shield of David in a few moments here on Two Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki Tribe. 
We are delighted to welcome you to Jewish Our Guest this morning. Chaim Rosenberg is a prolific author. His new book is called Shield of David, A History of Jewish Servicemen in America's Armed Forces. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish. Thank you, Rabbi Khan. So why uh, this book now? Well, I, you say I've written 15 books. I've written books uh, mostly about uh, prominent uh, Yankees because I used to live in New England. And I, I wondered uh, what the contribution to American life was. Uh, and suddenly, uh, uh, a year or two ago, I had an idea that I had to write a Jewish book and to show the Jewish contribution to the United States. Because I think Jews have been living in the United States since uh, 1654. And uh, I wanted to show that they had made a contribution from then until the, this, this time. You know, I, I'm going to focus on one uh, interesting detail here. At one point, Mark Twain uh, says something kind of hostile about how Jews don't serve in the armed forces, and then he does some research, or I guess he's enlightened and real, and then he writes a tremendous essay about the deep Jewish contribution. Tell us about uh, that particular document. Well, I think Jews have been extremely, always sensitive, even though uh, Jews have lived in the United States for 400 years or so, to the uh, to the accusation or the implication that they are less patriotic than other people. And Mark Twain, uh, in around 1890 or so, wrote an, an article saying that Jews are good citizens, they are respectful people, they're not drunks, they, they pay their taxes, they make a contribution to society, but they don't join the army. And that uh, irritated many Jews who felt that, that, that given the Civil War, uh, 30 or 40 years before that, the Jews had made a significant contribution to the Civil War and uh, had to tell Mark Twain that Jews, in fact, had made a contribution as much as uh, and perhaps even greater than other uh, groups such as Christians, Christian denominations. So Mark Twain reviewed the information and uh, he decided that, in fact, Jews had been good citizens, including their contribution to the military. The first Jew to die in the Revolutionary War was in uh, South Carolina, Francis Salvador. Um, as so far as we know, Jews were active, uh, the very tiny Jewish population during the American Revolution, uh, maybe 10,000 Jews in the whole of the colonies. Um, but the again, the participation was high even then, wasn't it? Well, it was high, and it was, uh, there were only about 2,000 Jews in the in, in the, in the United States of America, two thousand huh. after the uh, Revolutionary War, and, and, and so the the contribution to the war in terms of fighting was small, and the contribution to the country was small because they were a teeny con uh, population. But even even so, the Jews uh, in pre-Revolutionary America were living in essentially Christian uh, colonies, and the colonies specified that only Christians uh, could be elected to public office. So Jews were essentially uh, excluded from public office, uh, but they made a contribution to the war effort. And one guy, uh, Chaim Solomon, or Chaim, H-A-Y-M Solomon, yeah, Chaim was Solomon, a, an important uh, financier during the war and raised uh, substantial sums of money from uh, the Dutch and, and, uh, and French investors to um, to finance the war, so he made a, a significant contribution. But I think uh, after the revolution, there were a number of Jews who who tried to make the case that you could be both uh, non-Christian and still a, an effective citizen of the United States. 
And I think that, to me, is is a major Jewish contribution to show that that you can be a true American and yet be be of a different religion or a different ethnic group. And I think that's particularly important in today's uh, multi-glot America, which uh, with so many different people, many of whom are not Christian. We will talk much more with Chaim Rosenberg, author of the new book, Shield of David, when we come back in a moment. And, uh, of course, continue discussing Jews in the military in America uh, here on Two Jewish. Congregation Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in northwest Tucson in the Catalina Foothills, has a great array of services, classes, and events this winter. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives every day to serve God with joy. A progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services Friday night and Saturday morning, youth and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T, S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary in person. Call 520-276-5675 for more information. Religious school for school-aged children and grandchildren can be joined right now. We have a fabulous Hebrew school, bar and bat mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes experience, confirmation and teen programs in a relaxed, fun, educational setting with great Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up. Beit Simcha's services, classes, and events are open to everyone. Join us in person Friday night, Saturday morning. Join us in person Friday night at 6.30 p.m., Saturday morning at 9 a.m., or join us every Friday night on our Facebook page for Shabbat evening celebration services with full music Saturday morning. Services are at 10 a.m. All with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, leading them. Facebook page is B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson, Beit Simcha Tucson. Our musical services are in person and by virtual experience. All of our Adult Education Academy classes are live and on Zoom. Access those through our website, Beit Simcha Tucson, or email me, rabbi, at B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org. Religious school is available in blended format, too. Some students live, some on Zoom. For more information about Beit Simcha, to attend services, Torah study, our great religious school and Torah text programs, bar and bat mitzvah, confirmation, high school programs, rich array of adult education academy courses, taught live and on Zoom, and of course all of our services in person and on Facebook, go to B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org, that's Beit Simcha Tucson.org, or call 520-276-5675, that's 520-276-5675, Beit Simcha Tucson.org. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, in the fastest-growing Jewish congregation in all of Arizona in its exciting beginning years. If you have a comment, question, compliment, or criticism, Kvetrikfell, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's T-O-O, Jewish Radio 18 at Gmail, 
or go to our website, twojewishradio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through our website, twojewishradio.com. Streaming us from there, downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store is very popular Jewish podcasts. Top 10 in America, according to Moment Magazine. Over 175,000 downloads on Podbean and on Spotify, too. Please post a rating. Review to Jewish wherever you listen to us. Those comments help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation. Known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, conservative, and orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. We've been talking about uh, the Caucasus and Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan. One thing um, probably worth mentioning about Georgia is there's a really good reason to go there. Yes, many of your listeners would really enjoy a visit to Georgia both because the scenery is incomparably beautiful and because the food is far better than anywhere else in the former Soviet Union. They have a very elaborate cuisine that consists of vegetables, nuts, various types of cheeses. I mean, it's largely dairy and vegetarian-based, as opposed to Armenia and Azerbaijan, which are basically grilled meats. You can get meat in Georgia, and for those listeners who are worried about kosher meat, there are several kosher restaurants there as well. So, which is more than you can say about Tucson, Arizona. Right, right. And the food there is just outstanding in every way. They use a lot of pomegranates, pomegranate syrup, pomegranate molasses, pomegranate vinegar, et cetera, et cetera, and a lot of walnuts Hmm. um, in different ways. Ground paste instead of like tahini, they use like a walnut paste. Um, it's it's a fascinating cuisine, and it's it's worth visiting just to just eat to that eat. cuisine, right? Just right. to eat. But let's let's get to the biggest, most complicated Jewish community, which is Azerbaijan, which really, particularly Baku in its heyday as an oil boomtown in the last third of the 19th century and onward, um, attracted Jews from all over the world, all over the Jewish world. So the whole range of Jewish experience 
could be found in Baku. There were Yiddish speakers, there were Ladino speakers, there were Judeo-Persian speakers, every, everybody was there. And they stood widely apart from this conflict over a pretty obscure piece of territory called Nagorno-Karabakh in Russian, Artsakh in Armenian. Um, this is an area where the population is like 98% ethnic Armenian, but it is completely surrounded by territory that is indisputably Azerbaijani territory. And one of the things that Stalin did to bedevil his successors was he drew the maps in places where there were disparate ethnic groups that basically hated each other in such a way that if the Soviet Union ever broke up um, and the constituent republics that used to form the Soviet Union became independent countries, they would all contain big pockets of minorities from neighboring countries. So there would be the seeds of conflict were planted. And this is true all over Central Asia. The whole tragic war in Tajikistan that nobody knows about was caused by the way Stalin drew the borders. And Stalin intentionally drew this, the borders between Armenia and Azerbaijan in such a way that um, this isolated territory that's all Armenian would be surrounded by Azerbaijanis who could cut it off. There's something called the Lachin Corridor, which is pretty narrow. You cut that off, Armenians can't get in and out of Artsakh. Um, they also created an enclave of Armenians sorry, of Azerbaijanis between Armenia and Turkey called Nakhchivan, which has no land connection to the rest of Azerbaijan. They, to go between the rest of Azerbaijan and Nakhchivan, which is pretty big, you have to cross Armenia or you have to detour and go through Iran. But either way, it's, it's a hazardous undertaking. So the roots of this war lie in Stalin's degree of foresight about destabilizing potential successor countries. And he did a very good job. There have been several major outbreaks of this war since the early 90s, possibly even as late as the late 80s, but certainly since the Soviet Union fell apart and the Soviet authority um, was no longer there to quash rebellions, revolts, secessions, et cetera, et cetera. Ethnic war, essentially. It's, uh, it's you know, Amazing the long-term effects of some political decisions made hundreds of years before. It's just shocking sometimes to think that we're living not not just in history. We're, we're actually living in somebody else's decisions. Right. Thanks, Tom. We will talk next week. I look forward to it. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie knew, brought to you by Too Jewish as a public service. Morty is a successful businessman. His daughter, his beloved child, the apple of his eye, marries a nice young man. Morty decides to give his daughter and son-in-law a magnificent wedding present. He makes the young man a full partner in his business. On the first day after the honeymoon, he invites his newly minted son-in-law to come to the office and they sit down together. You know, son, partner, I'd like to get you started learning the business. How about you start in the loading dock? Son-in-law is not impressed. No, Pop, I don't want that job. Okay, partner, says Morty, uh, maybe a little too humble for you. How about starting in the mailroom? 
No, Pop, I don't want that job, his son-in-law replies. I see, says Morty. Well, uh, then, partner, I suppose you could start an accounting. Again, his son-in-law says, No, Pop, I don't want that job. Aha, says Morty. You have a strong opinion of yourself, partner. That's good. How about if I make you a junior executive? But still, the son-in-law answers, No, Pop, I don't want that job. Morty's getting a little perturbed by now, but it is his daughter's new husband after all. Okay, you drive a hard bargain, partner. Why don't I make you a senior executive? Once more, the answer is no, Pop. Don't want that job. Look here, partner, says Morty. You want to be the boss? That's my job. Okay, fine. You be the boss. Without hesitation, his son-in-law answers, no, Pop. I don't want that job either. Morty has reached the end of his rope. No? Really? Even that job you turned down? So, uh, tell me, partner. Just what do you want me to do with you? And the son-in-law replies, Buy me out. That was the old Jewish joke of the week. Special feature of two Jewish. Just for you, you should live and be well. I, I mean, I told you it was old. And now a word of Torah. This week we read the wonderful portion of Bishalach, the great tale of the exodus from Egypt. The story is familiar from Bible classes, sermons, Pesach, seders, movies, even cartoons. The Israelites, under the leadership of Moses, with help from his brother Aaron and even his sister Miriam, have been liberated from Egyptian slavery. God has sent the ten plagues to destroy the will of the oppressors. And now our people escapes Egypt after 400 years of slavery with just small bundles of clothing, some unleavened bread baked in haste, and a few trinkets of gold and silver uh, borrowed from their former slavers. The Israelites approach the sea. Some say the Sea of Reeds, some say the Red Sea. And Pharaoh has a sudden change of heart and mind. He decides cruelly to follow the Israelites with his chariot army and re-enslave them, or slaughter them, perhaps. Stuck on the shore of the sea between the oncoming enemy and the deep waters, God miraculously saves the Israelites, dividing the sea, allowing them to cross on dry land. The waters close up behind them, destroying their Egyptian pursuers. As they look back on the now unparted waters, the Israelites celebrate and sing a great song. Who is like you, God, among the gods who are worshipped? Who is like you, adorned in holiness, awesome in praise, who does wonders? That song is part of every evening and morning service in Jewish tradition, the Michamocha. It is often upbeat, joyous, energizing. For in that very moment, our people fully comprehended the miraculous saving power of God, the amazing ability to be redeemed from death and destruction. While it doesn't always turn out that way, it does remind us that in Jewish belief, God can do anything and has done so for our people at rare and remarkable times. It's not something you can count on in daily life. Although David Ben-Gurion, the founding prime minister of Israel and the true father of the country, memorably said in Israel, in order to be a realist, you must believe in miracles. That capacity is actualized in this portion, demonstrating freedom can come even to the most downtrodden and enslaved people in the world. Ben-Gurion also said anyone who doesn't believe you can't change history 
has never written his memoirs. One of the great aspects of the portion of Beshalach is that as soon as the story of the Exodus and the crossing of the sea is told in prose form, there is an immediate reinterpretation in poetry. And we have been reinterpreting this fantastic tale ever since. We will do it again, not only this Shabbat, but again on Pesach, on Passover. It's all very close to the heart of Judaism and Jewish life. And it is also a wonderful lesson that's been taken to heart by nearly every liberation movement since the Exodus, over 3,000 years ago. No matter how dark the prospects for freedom may seem sometimes, often, God makes it possible for slaves to become free. In the same way, God can make it possible for any of us to free ourselves from the bonds imposed upon us and reach a time of true liberation and true celebration. When we come back on To Jewish in a Moment, author Chaim Rosenberg will tell us what Jews have meant to the American Armed Services and how it is chronicled in his new book, Shield of David. Find out when we return in a moment on To Jewish. We continue with our To Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. Jews made up nearly half of America's biggest philanthropic donors last year, according to a calculation by Forbes magazine of who gave away the most money to charity in 2022. In a year that saw fortunes take a hit among steep declines in the stock market, America's 25 most generous givers donated a collective $27 billion, up from $20 billion in 2021, having given a lifetime total of close to $200 billion, according to Forbes. These include 11 billionaires with Jewish backgrounds, actually Jews, a dramatic overrepresentation when compared to the proportion of Jews in the overall U.S. population. The Jews on the list include financier George Soros, who gave away at least $300 million to racial justice and humanitarian work in Ukraine and other causes, businessman and former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, who gave $1.7 billion in donations to charter schools, clean energy, and fighting heart disease, and Meta Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, whose charity donated more than $900 million, much of the money going to fund research into artificial intelligence and genomics at universities. One thing that stands out about these Jewish philanthropists is that almost none of them have focused their giving on the Jewish community. Only Lynn and Stacy Schusterman of the Tulsa Oil Dynasty, who are paired together on the list, are prominent donors to Jewish causes. To be sure, many, if not all of the others, have given at least small amounts of money to Jewish charities. In 2021, for example, Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan announced $1.3 million in gifts to 11 Jewish groups, However, last year they distributed more than $900 million total, according to Forbes, which makes their Jewish giving about one seven hundredth of their philanthropy. 
Meanwhile, former Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer and his wife Connie have donated at least a million dollars to the Jewish National Fund, but they gave away $800 million last year, so that's one eight-hundredth of what they gave. And Michael Dell, founder of the Dell Computing Company, donated the land for the Jewish Community Center in Austin, Texas, his home, and has supported a recent renovation there. Still, out of this list of the top 25 donors in America, 11 of whom are Jewish, only the Schustermans, who gave $370 million last year, have prioritized Jewish giving. Hundreds of millions of dollars over their decades of involvement in the Jewish communal world have been given to Jewish causes. So, here are the Jewish philanthropists who made Forbes America's Most Generous Givers list, and here's how much they gave away last year uh, in descending order. Jim and Marilyn Simons, he invented hedge funds more or less, and quant investing, they gave away almost $2 billion. Michael Bloomberg, $1.7 billion. Mark Zuckerberg, $900 million. Steve Ballmer, Microsoft and LA Clippers, $800 million. Dustin Moskovitz of Facebook at Asada, $670 million. Lynn and Stacey Schusterman, $370 million. Edith Brode and family of KB Home and Insurance Companies, $340 million. George Soros, $300 million. Sergey Brin of Google, we don't have a number. He's a newcomer to this list, however. Michael and Susan Dell, $177 million. And George Kaiser, also of Tulsa, Oklahoma, $120 million. It's quite a list of major American Jewish philanthropists. And while it highlights the incredibly charitable generosity of American Jews at the highest level, it's notable that only the Schustermans have given a large amount to Jewish causes. Nine Palestinians in the Janine refugee camp were killed last week in an extended firefight with the IDF, which was trying to thwart planned terror attacks as well as capture at least three known Islamic Jihad terrorists. The operation was actually a joint one involving the Shin Bet, the IDF, and the police. Israel's defense establishment is prepared for an escalation of violence in the Gaza Strip in response to this raid. The IDF said that when it approached the residence, where three terrorists known to be hiding out were, two of them started running out of the residence while armed and were killed by IDF forces. A third wanted Palestinian terrorist surrendered, A fourth armed Palestinian attempted to engage Israeli security forces and was killed after an extensive firefight. IDF anti-explosive experts went into the residence and exploded two bombs safely that the terrorists had in their possession. The IDF said that the three wanted terrorists had already participated in multiple attacks and were planning even more substantial attacks. Israel has been targeting Janine since last April after a series of deadly attacks on Israeli civilian targets inside Israel's pre-1967 borders, of course, and in the West Bank. Israeli authorities say the attacks originate in the West Bank city of Janine, which is nominally under Palestinian authority control, but where, in fact, terrorist militias actually rule. Virulently evil white supremacist and far-right provocateur Nick Fuentes, was reinstated to Twitter last week by Elon Musk and returned to the social media platform with a volley of anti-Semitic posts and comments, including praise for Adolf Hitler. Fuentes, who is of Latino descent, nonetheless advocates the superiority of the white race and hates Jews. 
He is a Holocaust denier who first gained prominence after participating in the white supremacist Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017. And Fuentes was banned from Twitter in July 2021 amid the platform's eventual crackdown on far-right extremists in the wake of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol January 6, 2021. Fuentes burst back onto the public stage in November. He and Ye, the artist formerly known as Kanye West, had dinner with former President Donald Trump shortly after West embarked on an anti-Semitic spree on social media and in interviews. Fuentes' reinstatement comes as Elon Musk, who acquired Twitter last year, restores the accounts of many people previously banned for advancing far-right extremist ideas on the platform. Fuentes made clear upon his return to Twitter that he planned to pick up where he left off, posting a series of disgusting comments reflecting the brand of anti-Semitism he continues to spread in the loathsome spaces that have provided refuge for far-right extremists after Twitter and Facebook finally cracked down on them. The Republican National Committee will vote this week on whether to condemn Kanye West, Nick Fuentes, and others for promoting anti-Semitism. A resolution drafted by the committee characterizes Fuentes as laughingly comparing killing Jews at concentration camps to baking cookies in an oven. Watchdog groups, including the Anti-Defamation League, have sharply criticized Musk for welcoming far-right extremists to Twitter. Musk's toady, Ella Crawford, the company's new director of product management, tweeted, The future of humanity depends upon our ability to ensure that more conversations happen between people who disagree with each other. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. Well, if the future of humanity depends on despicable creeps like Nick Fuentes getting a voice on Twitter, we are in much bigger trouble than we thought. And that's the two Jewish news of Jews round the world. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful, grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 
888-788-7470. We welcome back to Two Jewish, our guest this morning. Chaim Rosenberg is the author of 15 books. His new book is called Shield of David. It's about Jews in the American military over the course of American history. Um, there, there's some fascinating stories. Can you tell us about the first Jewish admiral a little bit? One thing that really surprised me is how many Jews had uh, had joined the, the Navy and had achieved prominent positions in the Navy. The first one was a guy called Uriah Levy, uh, who fought in the War of 1812. It goes back that far. And he was, if I remember, born in, in uh, Philadelphia, and uh, he ran away to... to uh, to see you as a young boy and rose to become a senior uh, officer in the American Navy. But after that, there were several others, uh, a guy called Michelson who became a professor of, uh, I think, physics at the University of Chicago. But he was also a Navy admiral. And there were quite a few of them. And, and perhaps the most famous is, of course, Hyman Rickover, who grew up in Chicago in the uh, Jewish area of Chicago, but then became a Christian. But he's he's uh, he was the founder of the the atomic uh, the, the nuclear uh, navy, navy, right? The nuclear yeah. navy. Nuclear power. And subs. his background was very Jewish, but once he got to the naval academy, he he changed his stripes, so to speak, and he became a Episcopalian. <laughs> but his background was was very Jewish. Uh, I should note Uriah P. Levy is also famous for having saved Monticello. Um, he purchased it and uh, kept Jefferson's home alive when it was falling into disrepair. The family had run out of money, um, which is why you can go visit Monticello today, actually. Uh, yes, I, I, you know, I haven't done so myself. I, I assume you have. Yeah, but, yeah, it's uh, fantastic. The, the Monticello was going to ruin, and uh, Uriah Levy uh, took it upon himself. He had, after leaving the Navy, he had made his fortune in New York real estate, and uh, he used a good part of that money to restore Monticello for the American people. Uh, I want to talk about one of the, uh, well, let's talk about the Civil War because I think it's really during the Civil War that uh, Jewish representation in the military takes is extremely important. Um, a lot of the units that were called uh, German or Dutch uh, were actually Jewish units, weren't they, in the Army of the Potomac? The story really begins in Germany. There were, there were um, several Ger- German-speaking states, and they were having revolutions around 1848, yeah, like 1848 and a, a significant of German-speaking people to the United States. Among them are uh, maybe 20, 30,000 Jews, mostly single fellows who came... Yeah, by, single men who were coming first and then they'd send for their families or they had to flee prosecution for being revolutionaries in Germany. Right, and they, they had to get out of the, 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 these German states because they were against the government. And they landed up in America, and some, mostly in the north, and and, and many in the south. And when the civil, the American Civil War began, uh, these uh, these young German Jews uh, wholeheartedly joined either the Union Army or the, or, Confederate, or the Army Confederate Army, right? And, and fought each other, and but not knowingly, because they. There was no, uh, there was no provision for Jewish uh, troops in the in the revolution in the in the Civil War, uh, except that um, uh, that Lincoln acknowledged that there were Jews fighting, and uh, and he uh, arranged for some Jews to get furloughs to to celebrate Jewish holidays. I I should note that I have a personal connection. I have uh, family members who were the Del Banco family. They were. Uh, Sephardic, but 
married to German Jews, and three of them served in the Civil War, and one of them was a chaplain. Um, there weren't originally Jewish chaplains in the uh, Union Army. They weren't authorized till kind of the middle of the Civil War, right? Well, they were. They were. That's right. Uh, well, on both sides, even the the South was uh, somewhat sympathetic. I think uh, maybe even Robert more sympathetic Lee was initially. Sympathetic yeah. to Jewish soldiers. Uh, and said he would give them uh, furloughs on on Rosh Hashanah and, and Yom Kippur, yeah. but but it would set an, a, a, an example for the other troops. And he said it was he was reluctant to grant uh, 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 furloughs to to Jews specifically because it would would uh, entice other groups to want to have times off. In, in uh, I, I was going to say during the Civil War, one of my relatives uh, led high holiday services in occupied Vicksburg, and he. 1864 and died on a steamship um, on a steamboat coming back from there when it was either torpedoed or it just blew up. Sometimes they blew so up. So you have a family that's been here since uh, before the Civil War. Part of my family, the German Jewish part, the the Russian Jewish part, not so much. Um, in the, I was going to say, in the Civil War, obviously there was uh, significant participation, and that I think that that helped Jews become more accepted. Of course. Um, there was uh, Grant's famous or infamous order. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? The story I, I've read elsewhere is that he, it was Grant, Grant's father uh, got into league with a couple of Jewish guys uh, to, imp, to uh, import southern uh, cotton to the north. And the, the north had a tremendous need for cotton to provide uniforms and tenting and, and what have you for the northern troops. But, but the grandfather was trying to, uh, to get his son to agree to, for the passage of this illegal cotton to the north. Right. And this so irritated Grant that he took it out, he essentially took it out on the Jews. And he, and he, uh, he signed this edict, I think it was, uh, Number eleven, right. uh, banning all Jews from uh, this part of the South where he was in command, uh, and uh, telling them that they had to leave within uh, seven days or something like that, and uh, that set up a tremendous reaction amongst the, the Jewish leaders, particularly in the North, who went to see Lincoln, and Lincoln said he would have no part of that. And I think the real story is not so much what Grant did uh, impulsively really out of anger to his father right. but uh, what lincoln did to make uh, make a wrong right and yeah, lincoln said well, that he you cannot punish, right? uh, punish a group for the for the faults of the few and i think that set a tremendous precedent that you don't blame everybody for the folly of the few it, what was the greatest surprise uh, you found in researching this book what I determined was that when the, when the Jews first came to America, they were the, the outside group. They were not Christian. They were looked upon as something uh, foreign, Christ killers and stuff like that. And then uh, as they joined the army, the army began to adapt to the Jews by giving furloughs on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and by allowing kosher food. And by and by putting uh, the Star of David on Jewish graves rather than, than the Christian cross, so I think the the story I'd like to highlight is that it was not only that Jews were becoming more American, but the American system was becoming more uh, open to people who were not Christian, and the Jews uh, set the example that you could be both American and Jewish simultaneously without it being a 
without it being a, a threat to their patriotism. So I, I would say that to me was an enlightening feature that there are, there are now Jewish um, chapels at at, uh, at Key West, at the military, at the, uh, the Naval Academy, and I think also at the at the uh, flight school. So I think that the the the, uh, the armed services have adapted to the idea that you you don't have to be a Christian, you know, and the, 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 the other, there's that famous song by Irving Berlin about uh, Mr. Jones and Mr. Smith yeah. are in the army now. Right, right, yeah, you have and, it there. And, and I'd like to make the point that there were Mr. Jones and Mr. Smith and Mr. Cohen and Mr. Levy and and, and Mr. Goldberg from, too. Yep. And, yeah, and yeah, so that. And by the way, and Miss and and, and and Miss Goldberg also actually. Yes. Right. <laughs> So, so that 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 America, I think the Jews have prepared America to become a multi-ethnic, multi, um, multi, um, a mixed society, and to to create the, the 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 foundation that you don't have to be Christian to be a true American. You can be whatever you are and still be an American. I want to thank Chaim Rosenberg for a great visit here on Two Jewish. The book is called Shield of David. Uh, where can people find out more about you, more about the book? The best information about me, I think, is on my Amazon website. Uh, thanks so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. When we nice speaking with you, Rabbi. You too. When we come back on Two Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest. Get a final musical playout. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on To Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be the extraordinary Jewish woman outdoors heroine Blair Braverman, who has twice completed the Iditarod race in Alaska. And join us at Congregation Beit Simcha each Friday night for services in Oneg Shabbat at 6.30 p.m. Saturday morning, 2, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading in Kiddush, live in person and on our Facebook page. Our play out this morning for Shabbat Shirah this week, the Song of Moses, Shirat Hayam. It's a song of the sea in a contemporary setting by Pizmon. My friends, have a Shavua Tov, a good week healthy week in a week we pray profoundly of peace Sponsored by Two Jewish Radio Programs, Tucson, Arizona.